Recovery Elevator, episode 163. It's insanity. I mean, that somebody would, would need to drink four or five glasses of wine before they play a sport. That's crazy. But when I was in it, that was normal. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 43.5 months. On today's podcast, we've got Brittick. He's 33 years old from Bellingham, Washington, and he's been sober since October 25th, 2017. Okay, let's get started. If you're ever wondering why you drink so much, just go ahead and quit drinking and you'll find out pretty quick. There's a big thing normal drinkers do that we don't, and that's face their problems without alcohol. From the age 15 to 23, I didn't drink alcoholically, and I didn't drink to numb out life's problems. Sure, there were a couple spinoffs during that time when I was a normal drinker. For example, there was a time this girl Liz, who I chased pretty much the majority of high school, finally said yes to being my girlfriend, and then a week later, she broke up with me. That evening, with two of my buddies, I got shit-faced. Then I woke up with a cigarette lighter burn on my arm and a brain-splitting headache. I recall saying to myself, wow, unlike in the movies, that didn't work at all to alleviate the pain. And during that heavy drinking episode, Liz didn't return to being my girlfriend. And while I temporarily forgot about the emotional pain, I woke up with even more emotional pain coupled with a burnt arm, which I still have a scar from today, and a terrible headache. I remember saying to myself, wow, that didn't work. I will never do that again. Oh, Paul. When we first start drinking, it usually starts with a few drinks with friends, laughter, smiles, participation, and great conversation. It was a social lubricant that made social situations easier. However, there becomes a transition, which we are usually unaware of, where we start saying things like, man, Randy in accounting is an ass. I need a drink. Or, how could Verizon charge me $350 for roaming when I was only five miles across the U.S. border? I need a drink. There comes a time when we start drinking to cope with life's problems, and the threshold continues to get lower and lower, again without us knowing. Out of dental floss at 8 a.m., I can't take this anymore, I need a drink. Speeding ticket, it's time to get obliterated. There are two main things we are usually unaware of until it's too late. Number one, the transition into drinking alcoholically. Number two, drinking for enjoyment slowly transitions into drinking to cope with life's problems. The reason why the second one is so tricky to detect is because for a while, it seems like it's actually working. And it does. Dot, dot, dot. Temporarily. Alcohol numbs the emotional pain. Temporarily. Alcohol helps people disconnect from themselves. Temporarily. It helps people feel funnier. They feel better looking. Temporarily. It helps people escape the pain. Dot, dot, dot. You know what word's coming next. Temporarily. It makes that new dent in the side of your car go away, provisionally. Nah, that word sucks. Let's go back to temporarily. Alcohol makes normal life stressors go away or seem more bearable. Dot, dot, dot. Temporarily. In the short term, drinking once, twice to numb the pain of a breakup or a life stressor probably isn't going to do too much damage. However, drinking a lot for extended periods of time with truly excessive amounts of alcohol to dull emotional pain that is due to less obvious factors in life isn't the best idea. It won't help you get over depression. It won't help you get your partner back. 
It won't undent your car, and it will cause damage to you mentally and spiritually as well. Oh yeah, and, and it can also lead to alcoholism. Yep, yep, that's definitely what happened to me. So does alcohol actually numb the pain? Are we in any fashion successfully self-medicating ourselves? Well, the short answer is yes, followed by a word that starts with temp, ends with or rarely, or briefly, temporarily. Number one, alcohol is a depressant, so not only will it not numb your pain, but it will most definitely add to it. This is not the way to go. Alcohol only creates more problems when it comes to physiological pain, and it is not productive in helping you overcome your troubles at all. Number two, despite what I thought for a long time, avoiding your pain does not make it go away. It just sits quietly in a corner, and it grows like a weed until you can't keep it down anymore, and it overruns your life. Trust me because I know this to be true. The best thing you can do is to feel your feelings face value as they come. Yes, it hurts like an SOB and it is not fun in any way, shape, or form, but your feelings are there because you need to feel them. They serve a purpose, all of them. Ignoring or suppressing them is futile and it always comes back to bite you in the butt. So whether you feel it now while it's fresh or later when it's much more destructive and damaging, you need to deal with this pain because it will not go away. I'd like to read a text message I got from someone who was trying to quit drinking. Paul, I can get two to three days sober, and then this wave of depression hits me like a train. If I make it through the depression, which I usually don't, then around day seven, anxiety starts to creep in. I can handle the depression on its own. I can usually handle the anxiety on its own. But facing anxiety and depression together is nearly impossible. The only thing I found that makes this shit go away is alcohol. You might be saying to yourself, wow, Paul, quite the, uh, quite the encouraging podcast you've got going on here. If I want to know why I drink so much, all I need to do is quit drinking and face unbearable emotions until I'm forced to drink again. Cool. Good stuff, Paul. Well, two things. Let me read the latest text from my friend. Guess what, Paul? Today is 31 days without alcohol. I've lost 12 pounds. My depression is 90% better and anxiety has pretty much disappeared. I'm actually starting to like my job as well. The second thing is, you need to face these shitty emotions and feelings, but it will only be temporarily. I said temporarily. I'm already used to that. But it will only be temporary. I can't give you a time frame. It's different for everyone. A lot of it depends on how long you've been stuffing the feelings away. For my friend, it seemed to be about 30 days. For myself, it was much longer. For others, it's quicker. For others, it's much more longer. But if you face these emotions head on without coping with alcohol, then eventually the emotional pain will dissipate and you'll be able to handle life without alcohol. By numbing emotions with alcohol, all you're doing is stuffing them in a -a jack-in-the-box that can erupt at any time. You have a choice. You can either choose when you face these emotions or you can let life decide when to blow that can of emotions up. Okay, and before we hear from Britic, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. 
go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code opportunity to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Britic, how are you? I'm good, man. How you doing? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for asking. And Britic, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober since October 25th, 2017. I think that it is exactly 112 days. Nice job, man. And you're going to have a birthday coming up this Monday. You're turning 34. You're going to be sober yeah. for it. Yeah. You looking forward to it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to it. I'm not a big birthday guy. I never have been, but um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a great week. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Nice, man. My first sober birthday, you know, after like birthdays mm-hmm. zero through 15, I went to the Denver Zoo mm-hmm. sober. It was like a mid twenty, late twenties and it was awesome. So let me know yeah. how that goes. And, and Britt, before we get too far into the interview, give listeners a little sure. background about yourself, maybe where you're from, how old you are. You're 33. We just covered that. Maybe what you do for a living. You have a family, you have a girlfriend and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. So I'm 33, almost 34. I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is the most northwest corner of Washington. I have a little real estate team here in Bellingham. I've got a girlfriend. I guess I should say more of a partner. We've been together for five years. We've got, uh, she's got a son, so I've got a stepson here. He's eight. He turns eight today. And we're busy. We live, you know, very active lifestyle. I'm very into soccer, so right now we've got indoor soccer going. We've got my stepson is doing a lot of soccer stuff. On my free time, play guitar. We love to travel. We love to hike. We love doing stuff outdoors, lots of time at the gym. So, yeah, very busy. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Nice. And Burdick, there's a couple reasons why I asked you to be on the podcast. Number one, I wanted to say thanks for listening and nice job on 90 Days. Right now, you have 112. But listeners, Burdick sent me an email when he got 90 Days It was awesome. I love hearing success stories out there. So thank you for listening and thanks for sending that email. And number two is I I get a bunch of emails. It's just, it's a, it's, it's awesome. I love reading them all. I can't respond to them all and Mm -hmm. I can't get them all on the podcast, but so there were some things in your email that I was like, man, I I, want to get this guy on and and let him talk about it. And I'm just going to read a couple things from your email. And I know some people who are listening right now are in the real estate business, which basically means you're self-employed. But here's one of the things you said that resonated with me and I wanted you to share it. So you said, also, as a real estate agent, drinking seemed to be par for the course. Not a week would go by when there wouldn't be an agent happy hour or a client meeting over drinks. Plus, being self-employed, it became easy to find an excuse to drink. And you said, just had a closing? Yes, let's go drink. Deal fell apart? Let's go drink. 100 phone calls a day? I need a drink. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I know a lot of listeners who are self-employed and and kind of being that in, in, in that profession with a lot of freedom. Yeah, nice job. Mm-hmm. And, and what was that like for you? Well, it's, it is. It's it's you. We're in an industry to where they normalize drinking, and again, you you've got you've always got happy hours. You've always got these opportunities. And being self-employed, you know, you don't have a boss that you know that you're checking in with. So the accountability that you have is all on you. And so, you know, yeah, two, three o'clock, you, you know, you go, you know, meet a client or meet some other agents or meet a lender and you're, you know, you're having cocktails in, in the afternoon. You would, you know, lunches. I mean, anytime there was an opportunity to drink, you know, we would do it. And it, when you're around other alcoholics, you're around other people drinking, you don't think that you've got a problem. Everyone's doing it. And so, 
you know, as a real estate agent, it was it's it's definitely very very prevalent. Realtors are always drinking. And again, yeah, so and especially uh, I use alcohol absolutely to unwind from the day. You would have, you know, things would go south with a deal and I turn to a bottle, turn to a glass, you know, the first glass of wine and by the end of that glass of wine, your troubles are gone. You know, anything that happens whether good or bad, I would I would turn to drinking. And so it was absolutely, you know, huge, 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 every part of my life during the day and and, and in the evening. Unplugged. Yeah. And Burdick, in your email, you mentioned when I was 31, I started drinking at least one bottle of wine per night with three nights a week with at least two bottles per night. And it says, I found it Mm -hmm. increasingly challenging to stop once I had started. I know that line is going to resonate with a lot of people. It did with me. I found the same progression happened with myself. You know, was it age 31 Mm -hmm. when you're like, wait a second, this might not be normal. Or was it before that? Yeah. When did you first start to realize, hey, this might not be normal? I had started drinking a little bit in high school, not too much. I would say average. Then college, I was a relatively, I was right about average and I could stop. And then came my mid to late 20s, I discovered wine. And I just absolutely loved it. I loved the way wine made me feel. I hate, I hated hard alcohol. I didn't really like hard alcohol. And beer made me bloated. But I would say it was in my late 20s to where I was, I would start to crack a bottle and I found it increasingly hard to stop. Once I started drinking, you know, people would ask me like, well, how much would you, would you really, would you drink it? And I, I, sometimes I found it hard to answer the question because I just wouldn't stop until I was going to bed at 1130. And so I think it was my late twenties to where I really started not being able to to stop and not wanting to stop either, just continuing to go and, and really not having that ability to, to stop drinking. And, and Britic, I love the way you described stopping because it's so painful. You said, um, you know, like trying to stop peeing midstream, possible, yeah. but painful and unsatisfying. Yeah. It became so bad. I would grab a glass of wine with lunch, leave the office by four or so, grab a couple of single mini bottles of wine for the drive home, get home and crack a bottle of red wine, finish that bottle by yeah. seven or so, crack the second bottle around dinner time. And you also included these three lines, what you were doing. It said, I would play indoor soccer games having five to six glasses prior. I would drive my seven-year-old stepson after drinking a bottle of wine. I wouldn't ever attend a social event without first drinking two to four glasses of wine. Insert whatever soccer or whatever sport you're playing. There's so many of us that have yeah. done all this, all the same things. And it just sounds exhausting. Going to an intense cardiovascular oh, event such as soccer with, with like a pretty good buzz going on. Tell us about that. Oh my gosh. In looking in hindsight, I didn't go to a single soccer game sober in the last three years. And there were a couple times to where I was felling these during the middle of the games. I feel like this almost cardiac event where I'm like, what am I doing? You know, because, you know, you have four to five glasses of wine before you're playing soccer. Not only do you feel like garbage, but you know that your body is not going to handle that well. And it's not good for you. And so, yeah, for me, it was, it was my lifestyle. It was, it's what I did. So, it was, of course, every single soccer game before every single social event. Yeah, driving, you know, and, I, and it's been really hard for me now. And I'm so thankful that I didn't get into any accident, hurt my stepson or hurt anyone else or get any type of DUI. But it was always, always drinking before I did anything. And so, yeah, I mean, the soccer games in any event was hard. And in hindsight, when you're in it, you're thinking that it's normal. But once you're out of that perspective, it's insanity. 
I mean, that somebody would, would need to drink four or five glasses of wine before they play a sport. That's crazy. But when I was in it, that was normal. You know, and I remember, I mean, gosh, there was a couple of times where I got in a couple of fights during soccer games. And that's so outside of my personality. But during it, you know, that's, that's, that's what happened. And did you ever put any rules into place saying like, okay, tonight I'm only going to have three glasses of wine instead of six before you know, the soccer game? And, and did any of those rules work? Yeah. So after 4 p.m., I would say all bets were off. I had a rule about no drinking in the morning, but I never did that. And I kind of had rules around not drinking hard alcohol. But everything else, kind of all bets were off. I would, you know, it was all pretty much wine. And it was any time after three or four o'clock, it was what I was doing. And it was all consuming. So I never got to the point where I was measuring out three ounces of, you know, alcohol or I was saying after five o'clock. Um, that never, I never really made it that far. But um, I never drank in the morning. That's one rule I had. And predict those events, drinking four games, uh, all this stuff, it sounds exhausting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound enjoyable, but it sounds tolerable. Mm-hmm. As long as we still get to keep our drink, our best friend, we still get to hang out with wine. Until insert crippling anxiety, right? And I remember coming off a huge binge in Spain and I could feel it coming up. Didn't know what it was, right? But it was approaching as I was sobering up at like noon. I just, I kept drinking all day and finally I was like, what the hell is going on? Got any taxi cab? Thought I was having a heart attack. I was having an intense anxiety attack. And in your email, you said around age 33, uh, you know, right around lunchtime each day, you started to have anxiety attacks and those feelings are pretty uncomfortable. And tell us about that. If you haven't experienced a panic attack, they're the worst things in the world because you have no idea what's going on with your body and your system. You think you're dying. You're almost 100% convinced that you're dying or that something's wrong with your system. So yeah, so I started, I had had anxiety in my 20s and I was on anti-anxiety medication for a very long time. So in my early 30s, I switched those things up, and so I was off. But I was getting it was, it was when I was 33, 32. Right around lunchtime, I would get these intense panic attacks, and it was debilitating because sometimes I was with clients, sometimes I was sometimes I was with other people, and I would just completely lose my breath and just go into this really dark, dark place of freaking out. That shoot, I'm having a stroke right now. I'm having a heart attack right now. I assumed this was because, well, this is, you know, this is the anxiety that I've had in the past. This is the reason. But when I stopped drinking, the anxiety and the panic attacks went away. And um, I was floored. I was like, well, okay. That, <laughs> wow. It was, it was all alcohol. It was the boot. Yeah. It was completely the alcohol, which is, yeah, which, is, which is crazy. But yeah, I mean, if you've ever had a panic attack, they're so debilitating and so awful. Yeah, and, um, Riddick, they're the worst. And let me ask you a question. Would you mm-hmm. rather eat a burrito that's seven days old and there's a 30% mm-hmm. chance you're going to get food poisoning after this eating this burrito? It's probably maybe got some mold in it or have a full-blown yeah. anxiety attack. Which one? Well, I'd, pr- I'd probably have seven of those burritos even if they were two months old. <laughs> I, I think it's take the burrito hands down every time. So Every time. Every, every time. time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what was that feeling like when you, you, you remove this, this poison, this drug called alcohol, and the mm-hmm. bulk of the psychological emotional issues go away? And I know how I felt because I did a TEDx talk about it this year titled, I was duped by alcohol. What marketers led me to believe yeah. I felt that if I was ages 21 and up, all green lights ahead. What was your reaction when you're like, hey, this is bullshit. I didn't know this. Yeah. Well, I was floored. I mean, I was, yeah, I was in part 
thinking, well, this is complete bullshit. I can't believe I've been living in this sort of dreamlike state thinking it was everything but alcohol. But on the same token, I was ex- I was extremely ex- I was super stoked. I was so excited that the anxiety is going away. I'm sleeping so much better. It's easier to keep the weight off. I'm emotionally more stable now. My relationship with my girlfriend is so much better. A lot of our our relationship had we had some certainly some rocky patches and some huge fights, and a lot of those fights were because we were drinking. Mm-hmm. So in all aspects of my life, I feel like it's gotten way way better. I mean, I, I, it's not perfect by any means. I, I definitely have to, you know, deal with fear, deal with certain things in life that come at me. But I, I feel like I've got enough tools in my toolbox to be able to deal with them, at least right now, today, without having to pick up a bottle. And, and Brittick, talk to us about the anxiety. And, and you mentioned okay. that, it's, that it's gone today because I know that's, mm-hmm. that's the lever that pushes a lot of people over the edge, including myself. Like I could deal with the hangovers, a lot mm-hmm. of BS, but as soon as that anxiety really kicked in, the gig was up for me. And I know there's yeah. a lot of people experiencing it right now. You know, what was the time frame like for you and, and how did you notice it go away? Well, the first time frame was within the first week. The first day, I mean, I, when I quit drinking, I had a full down breakdown and it was a beautiful breakdown. It was, you know, there's a great quote I really like, and it's, it's a bad day for the ego is a good day for the soul. And I had a dark night of the soul and it had this breakdown that probably lasted about three days. But after that, about three days is when I really started noticing that I, I, I didn't have anxiety. There's always a slight amount of anxiety in anyone's life. There's a normal amount of daily stressors and things that we have to face. So I won't say that I'm like, I'm, I'm a hundred percent all Zen now, but I will say that, you know, and I, and I do, I do a bit about a meditation as well, which really helps. But I would say it was the first week, the first after three days, it was that quick to where I realized, because I was getting these panic attacks so systematically at a specific time of day. And I really noticed that after that three days, after I had this incredible breakdown, got connected with a, a buddy who's an alcoholic. It was after those three days where I really noticed that these panic attacks were not were no longer happening, and so you know again I've I've had experiences since then of, of you know some fear, but a lot of the fears is normal. It's what what I should experience in that situation. So it, it's been good, but I would say after the first couple of days is when I really started to notice a difference in my anxiety. Yeah, Burdick, I noticed that ninety percent of my anxiety went away within thirty days. And the remaining 10%, it took like three years for it to go away. And mm-hmm. I mean, But hey, I can deal with 10% anxiety for years one, two, and three. And I'm off my ADD meds. I'm off my antidepressants. Stuff that I was previously taking for anxiety, literally for the bulk of the treatment was to, you know, that stuff to treat the anxiety. And you know, mm-hmm. it, it's like... It's like a limp or a, or, some, or like a, a pain that you you realize, oh, yeah, I haven't been limping for three days. I realized the other day, I was like, man, I haven't had anxiety in months. But like you said, there is some anxiety that's normal. That's If you get rid of the anxiety mm-hmm. function in our body, it's we're probably going to just walk into trouble. I mean, it's, 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 it's a negative emotion telling our bodies to do something. So, it, it's yeah, some part of it's healthy. Well, I was just going to say, too, anxiety is anxiety and depression. It's multifaceted, too. So, you know, every brain is different. We don't know there could be a chemical imbalance that's you know that's exacerbated by alcohol, but there's some there may be other things too that are contributing to it. For me, it was a huge contributor. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you do it? Because in your email, you mentioned that I went 24 hours without a drink, and then I immediately chugged mm -hmm. a bottle of wine, <laughs> right? So, right, yeah. Right back into so cue downward spiral of addiction. How did you do it? Yeah, I would say for the last two years, I've really known deep down that I was an alcoholic. And then uh, come September of last year, anxiety is terrible. But I'm also waking up in the middle of the night internally shaking. And I knew something was wrong, of course, as any alcoholic is going to think that it's everything but alcohol. And so I, you know, I changed my diet and did some other things. But end of October, I woke up one morning and my hands were shaking. This was like the, the, the 22nd or 23rd of October. And then I stopped drinking for 24 hours. I, had, I, had my, I, used, I used willpower to stop drinking and it went away. It went away. And so I said, okay, this is it. I got to stop drinking. And then the following day, I chugged a bottle of wine. And that's when I had a breakdown in the middle of the night, just crying, sobbing that I'm powerless over this thing. It was the, full, the first realization that I truly cannot stop on my own and I needed help. And that's when I had this, yeah, this just incredible breakdown. So in the morning of the 25th, I brought my girlfriend up and I said, and I was, I was, I was sobbing. I said, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I need to get help because I'm killing myself. And she said, okay. All right. So I called my buddy on my soccer team. I knew he had a, had a previous drinking problem and it was in recovery. He's had a, over a year and a half. And I said, dude, I, I, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. Any advice? And he said, meet me for lunch. And so we got together that, that following day. And we went to a meeting that night and, and he got me connected with the, the, the book. And, and I treated it like, I feel like if you, if you, if you acknowledge that you're an alcoholic, I feel like you, you got to take it seriously. And so I initially, I was like, I got to treat this like stage four cancer. So I got all the books that he got. And then I was, I was in meetings every day for the first two weeks. And we were getting together once a week too and starting the, the step work. Of the, of the 12 steps. Brick, and I got to give you props because it sounds like you had the gift of desperation and a lot of people get that. I had, hey, I had a gift of desperation once a month, but there was a conduit. When that window opens to recovery, it will shut momentarily. And so I had plenty of gifts, gifts of desperations, but I didn't act on it. It sounds like you had a gift of desperation. You reached out for help, which I don't meet a lot of people yeah. that do that, like a one for one on that one. So nice job. Nice job. And, and then in the email, Thank you mentioned you. this same individual. He's your sponsor. Is he still working you through the steps? Yeah. So right now we're on step four. We just started step four. And so, yeah, we get together once a week. It is out. And we read the book, read the big book of AA. And yeah, just doing the step works. So it's awesome. He's an incredible human being. And it's, you know, everyone says, you know, that, you know, some people like AA, some people don't like AA. Like right now, I feel like that's, it's working for me. And so, yeah, we're just working through the steps. I feel like right now, it's like, I'm, I've got, I've got such an open mind that I'm like, you've stayed sober for a year and a half. You've obviously figured something else, you know, something out. So I'm listening to whatever he has to say and, and learning a lot from people at meetings and learning a lot from your podcast and just trying to do anything I can to make it through today without drinking. I love what you said, Bridic, when you said, it's working for me, right? I've heard the, the acronym KISS, keep it super simple. It's working for me. Yeah, AA works for yeah. a lot of people, and a lot of people don't like it. But, hey, if it's working for yeah. you, don't change it. Keep going. Yeah, that's awesome. And what have you learned most about yourself in these past 112 days, Bridic? I think the biggest thing is I've learned that I can do this. You know, I don't think, I, I mean, I know I haven't. I think in 2000. 
13, I took 16 days off drinking, and that was the longest I had gone since I was probably 20. So the biggest thing that I've learned about myself is, yes, I can make the choice to not drink today. So I realized that I was stronger than I had thought. And it's not a matter of willpower, as you say in the, you know, the, the podcast. It's, it's, it's kind of, for me, relying on a higher power, mm-hmm. whatever that means to you as, you, as you understand that. That's one of the biggest things I've learned. What does this higher power look like for you, Britta? The higher power to me, I would say I take more of a spiritual, almost Buddhist sort of God is in everything type of uh, approach. I don't really identify with a, a Christian concept of God, but I identify with a concept of, of God is, is, is beauty, intelligence, love, uh, and, and everything. That's kind of my concept of God, higher intelligence in a more abstract sense than a guy in a cloud. Gotcha. And Brittick, in sobriety, we are given a new way of life and we're basically given a new mm-hmm. life. What's on your bucket list? What do you want to accomplish? That's a uh, really good question. I started picking up the guitar again since I stopped drinking. Nice. I had laid down the acoustic guitar. I haven't picked it up in maybe five years. And so my big bucket list thing right now, I find that I can only focus truly on one thing at a time. And right now it's on the guitar. Just picking the guitar back up, just playing that. I would love to do a full marathon. I have done a half marathon before. I would love to do that. I'd love to do, I see people doing it every year and I'm always bummed that I never got on the team, but I'd love to do a Ragnar race. So that hopefully will be in the cards this year. I'd love to, to keep traveling and just continuing to find uh, you know, beauty in the, the small things of life that I was really, when I was in my later days of drinking, was really neglecting. When you come out of it from the other side, you don't realize in what a bad place you were in. Even though I was a high-functioning alcoholic, even though I was financially doing well, emotionally and spiritually, I was not in a good place. And so now that I'm sober, I'm really kind of relishing the the opportunity to find joy in the little things, finding joy in in the walks that I go on and take my my dog on, taking joy and spending time with my stepson, just taking the time just to enjoy every single day that we have. So I don't know. I've got some big bucket list things. Uh, as you, you know, we, we talked, we just got back from a retreat in Costa Rica. Right now, I'm just kind of trying to, to find joy and meaning in the little things. And Britic, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Do it. All righty, Britic. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Well, there's been a few worst memories, but the biggest one that comes to mind Waking up, my you know, my hands shaking, and just that full realization that I'm powerless over drinking. That was on, at the end of October. I had another one. You wake up one morning and you realize that you just said things that were just inappropriate and rude to people. Mm-hmm. And there was two years ago where I said I was just an asshole yeah. to a bunch of people at a at a realtor banquet, and that sticks out to me because it's so outside of my normal personality. As just you know, something that I would never do. There's lots, lots, lots of things. Driving my son after drinking too much, driving my stepson—that's a big one. There, there's too many to count. But I would say those are the examples that I got there. In Britic, with 112 days of sobriety, what's your plan to get 113, 14? What's your plan moving forward? Yeah. So talking to my sponsor, I think staying close to it is really important to me. After a few, after a, I think you know, 60 days, I stopped 
you know, it, it, the first 60 days, I was so gung-ho, and, and it was so easy. I was reading the big book, the, real, the, the, the big book AA, every single night. I was going to so many meetings, talking to my sponsor every single day. And then it kind of went a little bit, that alcoholic mind kicks in, that you got this. Staying close to it, staying close to the fact that I, can't, I cannot drink, is, and then I'm an alcoholic. It's really important. Telling people about it is important to me because that keeps me accountable. Talking to my sponsors in the community of people, in AA is really, really important. Yeah. I think you lined up a pretty solid recovery portfolio, recovery plan moving forward. Um, the community is huge. So I'm really glad to hear that word huge. has been a big part for your sobriety. And then, you know, what's your favorite resource in recovery, Burdick? Cliche, but my favorite resource is just the AA community. I love your podcast. As I was telling you, I listen to it on Tuesdays on my walk. I think between that, between the big book of AA and your podcast, those are my two big resources that I use. Nice. Well, thank you for listening to the podcast. Yeah, I sure. just want to say like a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago, I had an episode that came out that I kind of said some bad things about AA, but I'm right there with mm-hmm. you. I've gone to three AA meetings this week, going to a goodbye party at an AA meeting Thursday night. I love the program. So yeah. I'm right there with yeah. you. And like, you got to stay close. The, the stories of people relapsing, they all follow a similar thread. Well, you know, I stopped going to meetings. I stopped doing this. So I kind of don't want to be that guy. So (laughs) I don't know if I'm not going to AA meetings out of fear being that guy. I enjoy it. It's the community, but I agree hundred percent with you. Just stick with the pack and stay close. Yeah. And then in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I ever received was you don't have to stay sober forever. You just have to stay sober today. It's daunting, daunting to say, I'm never going to take another drink in my life, but it's easy to say, I can easily not have a drink today. And that's huge for me. That's one day at a time, just to make it through the day. All I'm going to do is make it through today. That's the biggest piece of advice that's been impactful for me. Yeah, and what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober or listeners who are already in recovery? I would say, if you're, first of all, get off the fence. If you're on the fence of whether you're an alcoholic or you're not, get off the fence. Some people aren't. Some people can stop. That's great. But if you can't, get off the fence. Admit to yourself. Fully admit to yourself that you are. And if you do fully admit to yourself that you are, treat it like it's stage four cancer because it will kill you. I know people who kind of waver, go back and forth. And if you waver or you question whether you are an alcoholic or you are alcoholic in a a sense, can't stop, then you got to treat it seriously. And so get off the fence would be my biggest piece of parting advice. And then when you're off the fence, take it very seriously. Yeah, get off the fence because eventually something's going to push you off the fence. And it could be a car wreck. It could be crippling anxiety. It could be somebody leaving you. Mm -hmm. It could be divorce. It could be death. But something eventually is going to push you off the fence. This is true. Yep, yep. Yeah, and Britic, before we depart, give listeners your own customized that you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if when you go to your car in the morning, you find empty mini bottles of wine in your side consoles your front console and your glove box. I love it. I love it. And Britic, thank you so much for joining us. Congrats on 112 yep, thanks days. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm excited for your sobriety in the future. Thank you, Britic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Making a big life change is pretty scary, but you know what's even scarier? Regret. That's a quote by Zig Ziglar. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>